welcome to episode 18 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. It's been a busy couple of weeks. We tabled and volunteered at NOCAS last weekend. Which is the New Orleans Comics and Zine Fest. Uh, and then, obviously, Thanksgiving came in the interim. We just came back from a wedding. Like, literally just got back to New Orleans a few minutes ago. Yep. This, of course, is the movie review website Swamp Flicks in podcast form. Ooh. In honor of Thanksgiving, uh, we watched a few movies that sort of fit in the holiday. We watched um, the two Wicker Man movies, the 1970s original flavor Wicker Man, and its 2006 remake star Nick Cage, which has sort of been memified in the years since it came out. So we kind of went with a harvest theme for that half of the episode. And uh, we also watched um, a movie about food for our Movie of the Minute segment. Before we get into that, what have we seen since the last time we talked that was particularly great, Cece? Uh, well, I got to see Arrival, which I had been really excited about. I actually haven't read the short story it's based on, but I read a lot of sci-fi. And a lot of the people whose opinions I respect were very into the short story and were also very excited about the movie. It's a high-concept sci-fi film starring Amy Adams and uh, Jeremy Renner. Directed yeah. by Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> I cannot pronounce that guy's name. The guy who did... Uh... Yeah, he's a Canadian director. He did Sicario last year, which was pretty great, and Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal, and Prisoners, which I've never seen before, but I've enjoyed most of his movies so far, but this was the first one that I was really passionately like in favor of. I thought it was pretty okay for maybe the first like three-fourths, and then the last half hour like completely blew my mind. It's got this great sort of paradigm shift where it like completely changes how you saw all the movie up to that point, and sort of retroactively made all these problems that I had with it uh, work for me all of a sudden. So it's kind of a hard movie to talk about without spoiling anything. It's about aliens. I think we can say that much. It's about the first contact with an alien race and how... How the heck do we communicate with them? Yeah. And it's kind of cool in this um, terrible political climate we're in to like see how like empathy and patience, things like that, can sort of diffuse a tense political climate. Um, yeah. And yeah, the movie's very much about that, like peace and language barriers and cultural clash and stuff like that. We're, of course, the, the good guys. We're the best of the guys. <laughs> it's very pro-American in a way that may or may not be realistic as far as like our likelihood to shoot something out of the sky. Uh. Yeah, that kind of bugged me because in uh, Shin Godzilla, the Japanese Godzilla movie that came out a couple months ago, they have a similar like worldwide response to an alien presence, except that the way this movie portrays America and the way Shin Godzilla portrays America in that conflict are, like, way different. And yeah. I thought the Godzilla movie was actually more accurate, whereas, like, Arrival sort of demonizes China in a, in a weird way. But I don't know. I, I, besides, like, a couple nitpicky things, I, I just thought the story was really worthwhile. And once it, like, got me there to, like, a, a destination where I could see where all the different pieces fit together, it felt so worth it. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a high-concept sci-fi movie, so, like... You can't pick it apart. You can't remove anything, really, without like the whole thing collapsing too much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really fun. I liked it a lot. And uh, besides that, I've seen a few small things. I've been wrapped up in this uh, series starring... Um, it's like this Japanese made-for-TV movie series called uh, Supergiant about this superhero named Starman, who's this space alien knockoff of Superman. And he fights all these, like, Dick Tracy villains. And they have, like, these really inane titles like uh, Attack from Space and Invaders from Space and Atomic Rulers of the World. 
Uh, and those are pretty goofy, but sort of just like background stuff. The only thing that really stood out to me, other than Arrival, that I've seen since the last time we recorded, was this movie Society from 1989. It's this horror film about sort of Reagan-era yuppies who live in these like sort of country club mansions like in Beverly Hills, California. Like p- picture the opening credits of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and you get kind of the vibe. And one of the kids who's sort of this like valedictorian jock character uh, starts to suspect that he doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the people in, in this rich, wealthy country club set and the more he discovers the more paranoid he gets until the movie just devolves into this sort of Cronenberg incest and melted bodies horror uh it's absolutely disgusting finale to that film but so worth it really gross weird stuff and also really pertinent to the times because it's about how like the wealthy prey on the poor and stuff like that which certainly can um feel resonant yeah definitely uh brings to mind some gaps in this country right now but yeah society i know it's on shutter right now so if you have a subscription to shutter that's a really easy way to watch it well uh I mean, that's a pretty good wrap-up of what we've been watching that's worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, so, like I said, we are about to talk about the two Wicker Man movies, and before we get into that, our Movie of the Minute segment, where we recommend films to each other. And all that's coming up to you right now. Japanese people of all ages love ramen. Broth, noodles, and toppings are the three elements of a bowl of ramen. But within that basic framework, there is almost endless variation. The flavor of the ramen is determined by the broth. Ramen broth can be made from a wide range of ingredients, such as pork and chicken bones, fresh, dried and processed seafood, and more. Each ramen shop has its own unique recipe. Then come the noodles. There are curly noodles and straight noodles, fat ones and thin ones. Noodle recipes also vary from shop to shop. Popular toppings include slices of roast pork and a boiled egg. Ramen may also feature various vegetables and local specialties. Broth, noodles, toppings. By combining these three in their multiple variations, you get almost endless ramen creativity. So, like I said, we uh, picked a movie about food for our Movie in the Minute segment. Sort of, like, coincide with the best part of the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, Cece, what did you make me watch? So, I wanted to watch something warm and comforting, like a bowl of soup, both because of the political climate and also to tie in with Thanksgiving. So, I made Brandon watch Tempopo which is a 1985 Japanese comedy. They build themselves as the first ramen western, a play on the spaghetti western genre. It was recommended to us by our friend Angela Leone, and then I forgot the recommendation for a while, and then I was putting together a movie list of like comforting movies uh, for some of the students that work for me uh, to watch over the break, and this came up on like a lot of like lists for like a comforting, feel-good movie, and I was like, this is exactly what I need right now. Ramen for the soul or whatever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's this funny little, little uh, Western-style movie about this kind of... I don't know, a terrible ramen shop owner who's really clueless about ramen, and she 
enlists the help of these two swaggering cowboy style milk truck drivers to like help get her in shape essentially like rocky style like and it includes like scenes where she like has to like go jogging she's like i don't see how this could possibly be relevant to me like making ramen they're like no it's super important to the process uh and then like their little ragtag crew like grows and like they like start involving more and more people like in their ramen shop and then eventually you know it uh it becomes a successful ramen shop, and they name it after her, Tampopo, which means dandelion in Japanese. Uh, but yeah, what do you think about this film, Brandon? I thought it was absolutely brilliant, like a comedy masterpiece. A few months ago, we talked about that Roy Anderson movie, um, Pigeon Sat on a Branch. James made me watch it. And it's it's basically like these like vignettes, where these scenes just sort of play out almost like sketch comedy. And I thought it was funny, but just kind of like in a, oh, that's that's clever kind of way. Uh, this movie uses that same structure where it's got all these like different vignettes that don't really serve the plot from minute to minute. Like they kind of exist as their own tangents. Yeah, and the characters from the subplots don't really ever interact with or affect the main narrative thread. But it all comes together to form this giant gestalt kind of like a bowl of ramen. Like it's got all these individual parts. Yeah. And you're supposed to like respect and enjoy them individually, but they all come together to like shape this really wonderful movie that leaves you with such a great feeling at the end even though there's some really like weird and nasty violent things that happen in the film itself well it's a western yeah it's kind of funny to think of it as like a comforting warm experience because it is so uh shocking at times like there's these two characters um the man in white who's a gangster yes yeah, so mistress he introduces the movie and kind of threatens the audience to be quiet uh to, to not ruin anyone else's movie experience with their crackling foods in the background yeah. and all the while his like henchmen are laying out like a small table with like a roasted duck and like a bottle of champagne and, like all these other niceties for him yeah but don't eat chips near him <laughs> he hates it yeah and him and his mistress um when they have sex most of it is just them feeding each other and I swear it is like the filthiest, most explicit sex scenes I've ever seen in a film before. Even though it's not like typical pornography, it's like two people passing an egg yolk from uh, mouth, mouth to, to mouth. mouth, or like um, the woman's lips are sideways, so they kind of look like a vagina, and he pours like honey down it, and it's this, like slow honey trickle over these like sideways lips with her tongue sticking out. It's really so filthy. filthy looking. Yeah, but it's all suggestive material. It's yeah. kind of crazy. And then they're not even really part of the plot. Their whole thing is just no. sort of like a love letter to movies. Yeah. Um, they really love going to the movies, and they love to eat, and they love having weird food-related sex, you know? Like, that's their thing. And that has nothing to do with the plot of the movie. Uh, a couple of the other short vignettes... Uh, there is an old woman who goes into a high-end luxury grocery store and squeezes all the foods, like, and destroys them in the process. So the clerk has to, like, chase her around the store trying to get her to stop squeezing all of his, like, fine wares. Like, individually wrapped peaches that are, like, you know, like, $12 each kind of a thing. She's, like, putting all these thumb holes in them. Yeah, she's, like, violently jamming her thumb into this stuff. It's, like, really yeah. malicious. Oh, yeah. It's, and also very sexual. Um, <laughs> it's, like, soft cheeses and peaches and, you know, these, like, luxury goods. There's another vignette where a housewife is literally on her deathbed, and they're like, come on, just rouse yourself a little bit. Hey, what about dinner? You haven't made dinner yet. You can't die yet. And she, like, literally, like, rises from the grave to, like, cook them a meal and then sits down to the meal and, like, drops dead in the middle of it. Like, And that part, like, if I was talking about earlier by Roy Anderson, who did, like, Pigeon Sat on a Branch and Songs from the Second Floor, like, that is... It almost seems like he completely lifted his style of humor from that scene specifically. 
Because, like, uh, one of the gags in Pigeon on the Branch is this guy is ordering food at a cafe, and he dies before he gets to eat anything. And the waitress is like, oh, does somebody want his full beer in this meal? Like, I don't want to go to waste. And, like, someone sort of sheepishly, like, I'll yeah. take the beer. But, yeah, that, that sense of humor has obviously influenced other artists. Like, this seems like kind of a cornerstone movie even though I had never heard of it until maybe last year. And it's getting a restoration right now, right? Yeah, that's. Uh, it's also kind of been, like, I guess in the air because it is getting a brand new, like, film transfer restoration. Uh, and I think it's actually showing in movie theaters again, or it will be uh, very soon. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if it's making it down in New Orleans, but it's definitely been making sort of like a 4K uh, tour of the country, sort of the way Daughters of the Dust is, is and a couple other films like that. Any other vignettes sort of stand out to you? I'm trying to think of other things that happen. Uh, there's a really good scene where there's like a, a stuffy group of businessmen and they all order the exact same thing. Like one of them makes his order and it's like really like simplistic, like dumb kind of order. And then everyone else is afraid to order differently from him. And so like they all like nervously go around and they're like, yeah, no, I'll have that. Like, yeah, imported beer, salad with house dressing and like, you know, whatever else they order. And then there's like this like one... I don't know. I guess I guess he's like he's dopey. He's kind of dopey looking. Like he's like not paying attention. He's not reading the room at all. And he's like rattling off this very complex like fine dining order. Like oh, I'll have the escargot. Oh, what do you suggest? Do you, do you like the foie gras dish? Like he's calling I'll have that. specific vineyards and years for wine. Yeah, and everyone else is just like very upset. They're like, no, you get one imported beer and you order the house salad with the house dressing. Like wow, <laughs> get the iceberg lettuce with the tiny tomatoes. Like that's what you eat. Oh yeah, and there's this other scene where um, it's in, it's in a restaurant type setting, maybe in the same restaurant. Uh, and there's this sort of etiquette class teaching these Japanese girls how to eat when they're abroad, how to eat spaghetti, Western foods. Yeah, sort of like how to um, you're not supposed to slurp it the way you slurp ramen. Uh, you're supposed to quietly slurp up the noodles. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's this American asshole in the next dining room who's just like slurping up a ton of spaghetti like super loud. Yeah, he's eating it like a Japanese person would eat ramen. Like you don't want to bite down and cut the noodles with your teeth you don't want to use utensils to like twirl them about into a bundle to stick in your mouth he's just slurping spaghetti and it's so loud that it's carrying from one dining room to the other so like everyone's getting like super embarrassed and like weirded out by it the sounds in that scene get absurd just the amount of slurping is out of control eventually yeah and eventually the girls are infected by it and like can't stop themselves and like the etiquette teacher herself like starts slurping with them and so then there's just like 50 people slurping noodles <laughs> I, yeah. I i appreciate that as disparate as the different vignettes can get in terms of like their themes and like the sort of comedy style even shifts a bunch i don't, I don't want to qu- quite call it like a like a zazz type spoof even though they do spoof stuff like rocky and westerns on purpose um it is sort of like a madcap comedy um but it it, that the idea of food is always at the center of everything it's like a very um it's impossible to watch this movie and not get hungry yeah no i've I've been like craving ramen ever since there's a there's a local place called noodle and pie that sells just ramen and then like american style pies so i really want to go now try it out (laughs) eat some ramen that that uh, scene that Angela showed us to get us like interested in this movie is one of the first scenes in the film where this older man uh, teaches sort of like a young kid how to eat ramen. He's a ramen coach. He he <laughs> he's a ramen, I guess, like master. And he just like shows you, oh, you dunk the pork three times lightly just to show it that you're appreciative of it being there. 
and you move uh, this one vegetable from one side of the bowl to the left side and sort of drain it a little bit and you wait for the side and then you take one long sip of the broth like there's this uh, very technical um, order of things to how to appreciate the food and I, I really do think that starts to inform how the rest of the movie takes shape they sort of poke and prod at all these different little stories uh, and by the end everything really does come together in this really satisfying way and it's really hard to orchestrate that kind of movie plot where you're that spread thin through all these different characters and stuff and to make it feel like it actually is like a whole mm-hmm. and like one story like yeah it really impressed me i thought this movie was like brilliantly constructed yeah i, I think that's probably why it's also like even though we hadn't really heard of it like it's also one of like the most highly rated films of all time, like as far as like critical acclaim goes. Just because everyone who does see it, they like even if they don't care about the food or the culture it's portraying, just as a film, the way that they were able to edit this seemingly disparate group of stories together to serve like a larger narrative purpose and still have like a really important narrative plot. Like this could have been a great movie just with the Tampopo ramen shop story. And, you know, they still found time to weave in all these other stories without ever making it feel like dragged out or overly long or too scattered like just like from a filmmaking standpoint this is like a really extraordinary piece yeah yeah and the visuals are really um experimental from scene to scene like the final way the shop looks and the way it's shot is completely different than the rest of the film it looks yeah. like a weird dream sequence almost the only thing that's really compares maybe the the sex eating uh, the splashing or whatever you want to call it uh kind of compares a little bit to how that scene is shot but it really does change things up to match the story it's telling from minute to minute. Is there anything else you wanted to mention? No, I think we covered everything about Tampopo that we really wanted to cover. Um, all in all, it left me feeling really comforted, and I'm really glad I watched it when I did. Yeah. I really do think after a couple watches, I, I would rank this up like there with one of the best comedies I've ever seen, just because it is so like lovingly made. The only thing I'm like kind of curious about is there's a... Um, I don't think this is much of a spoiler, but the film ends on the shot of a breastfeeding baby over the end credits, and I want to know how that that uh, grown person feels about being the baby who breastfeeds at the end of Tampopo. <laughs> I'd like to see a brief interview, just checking in on, on that baby, see how they're doing. Yeah, and I'd be really interested to watch like other films of that director, um, Juzo Itame. You know, I want to see more of, of, of his films now. So. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Afternoon, Sergeant Howie. I trust the sight of the young people refreshes you. No, sir. It does not refresh me. Oh, sorry. One should always be open to the regenerative influences. I understand you're looking for a missing girl. I found her. Splendid. In her grave. Your lordship is a justice of the peace. I need your permission to exhume her body, have it transported to the mainland for a pathologist's report. You suspect uh, foul play? I suspect murder and conspiracy to murder. In that case, you must go ahead. Your lordship seems strangely unconcerned. I'm confident your suspicions are wrong, Sergeant. We don't commit murder up here. We're a deeply religious people. Religious? With ruined churches. No ministers, no priests. And children dancing naked. They do love their divinity lessons. But they are are naked. 
Naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Um, for the Thanksgiving holiday, I thought it'd be kind of fun to watch a couple movies I associated with Harvest, uh, since that's one of the more interesting and less uh, horrific parts of the holiday. And I thought immediately to The Wicker Man from 1973 and its 2006 remake with Nick Cage. Watching the films again, it sort of became apparent to me that they're very like springtime movies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you on that, because I actually feel like one of them is very much a springtime movie, and one of them actually does feel like a fall movie. Okay, and that would be the remake? The remake is a fall movie. Okay, I can see that. The coloring's different in that movie, and they strip it of all the visual imagery that suggests springtime. But, but they are together like two horror movies about the cycle of a harvest, mm-hmm. even if they don't take place during the fall. Absolutely. The uh, first one from 1973, uh, the only actor of note I would say that's in it is Christopher Lee, plays this sort of patriarch of this island called Summer's Isle off the coast of Scotland. He's Lord Summer's Isle. Lord Summer's Isle. Uh, and what he has done, or what he has inherited from his ancestors, is this small, insulated community that basically brings pagan beliefs and rituals into the new world uh so they have all these um fertility uh rituals and sacrifices to the gods of the sun and the gods of the sea to make sure that they have a good harvest and their island harvests apples which they export i guess to pay for stuff stuff Yeah. yeah and to like feed themselves they are investigated by a British policeman who is way out of his league. Uh, They completely make a fool of this man. He is a 40-something-year-old virgin cop from the mainland, tries to subject this entire society to British law, and they pretty much just laugh in his face and torture him uh, for the entire film until he's made into the ultimate fool towards the end. Uh, And this is built around the search for a little girl that may or may not exist uh, and he's trying to get to the bottom of that mystery. The remake from 2006 stars Nick Cage, and I think a lot of people who aren't that familiar with like horror film history would, if you said Wicker Man, the first image that would come to mind is that YouTube clip of Nicolas Cage screaming about bees. Not the bees! <laughs> yeah, the movie's been sort of like turned into this like meme. And unfortunately, the first like hour of the film's not that interesting until he starts doing his like traditional Nick Cage flip-outs towards the end. And the second one uh, doesn't have as much to do with him being an uptight, uh, out-of-his-league fool of a virgin police officer. He's a completely different kind of cop, and your sympathies are sort of shifted based on based on how they portray the people on the island there. Um, what, what do you see as, like, the major differences between these two films? Well, you know, one uh, is a thoughtful critique of rigid Christianity and, you know, also rigid, like, paganism, uh, and the other one is a flaming trash heap. <laughs> Yeah, if the Nick Cage uh, remake is about anything, it's about how women are evil and they shouldn't have power. Yeah, misandry, guys. <laughs> like, if you give us an island, we'll abort all the baby boys and, uh, you know, smear blood on things and, I don't know, just do all kinds of other nasty things. So Christopher Lee's patriarch from the first one is replaced with Ellen Bernstein in the uh, remake. and um, She's now Lady Summer's Isle. Ooh. Yeah. And this is a set where? Somewhere near Portland? Or? Puget Sound. Puget so Sound, yeah, yeah, like up by Seattle. So um, men are second class citizens. They're basically... They've all been like... They've all had their tongues cut out. They're the muscle, but not the brains. Yeah, they're operation. not allowed to talk. 
they yeah selectively abort babies to like not have males the instead of just being like wealthy and like you know the matriarch of the community lady summer's isle is the living embodiment of their god <laughs> uh which is the island itself and i'd um, say the first hour of this film is really abysmal like it feels like a mid-2000s standard horror film except it's set in the daylight which feels strange for that for that yeah. genre uh, and really, it is that last forty minutes when Nick Cage starts flipping out and like punching women in the face. Uh, a lot of a lot of face punching. Yeah, what a, like roundhouse kick to the chest, throwing like a you know like hundred pound woman like back into a wall where she like slumps over unconscious. Like, Lily Sobieski, to be specific. Yeah, no, he punched the shit out of her. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes sort of like an over the top camp spectacle in that last forty minutes, but it's coming from such a nasty place that you feel. Or at least I feel a little conflicted laughing at it. Yeah. And and also, I think we're supposed to be on Nick Cage's side. Like, these women are purposely being obtuse with him. Like, he's like, where's the child? And they're like, what are you talking about? There's no kid. I think we're supposed to, like, really, like, sympathize with this guy. And I just, I really didn't. He was an asshole of a cop. That's mostly what struck me of the two differences between these movies. I don't think that in the 1973 Wicker Man that cop is supposed to be like an audience surrogate the way that Nick Cage no, is No, like remake. he's kind of a jerk, like, yeah. but like, you know, like, there's no threat of physical violence from him, like, I don't feel like the cop in the first movie would ever like punch a woman in the face, he's just like getting increasingly frustrated, he's like, you guys are teaching children about phallic symbols, that is messed up, man, don't teach children about penises, like, don't show kids, like, animals having sex and be like, oh, and this is what it looks like when humans have sex. Like, that's messed up. Yeah, and he um, sort of represents, like, a repressed British sexuality. Yeah, like, I feel like, the movie's he wouldn't have worked had he been, like a, like, a less rigid person. Like, they needed him to be so dogmatic that he couldn't see past his own, like, prejudices and notice what was going on around him. And so, yeah, I don't think the audience, because the audience is figuring out what's going on all around him, like... He's obviously not our surrogate because, like, we can figure out that they're tricking him, like, well before he figures it out. But that's not to say that they're necessarily portrayed as, like, angels or anything. Either. No, they're, they're really <laughs> gross body people. Like, body is in B-A-W-D-Y, but also body. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's... Ne- I, I, I get the feeling this man saw more nudity in, like, a 48-hour span than he ever saw in his entire life. Yeah, there's, life. like, literal couples fucking on the ground outside the hotel, like, just to keep him up at night. Like, and he's like, stop fucking outside, that's gross. <laughs> and they're like, ha ha. In the, gotcha. uh, the the tavern where he's staying, the uh, owner's daughter does this like seductive dance on the other side of the wall, trying to beckon him into her room, uh, and she's naked and like staring into the camera in this like really uncomfortable way. And slapping way. her butt cheeks at us, <laughs> yeah. like bending over and slapping her butt cheeks. I'm like, I think you're making fun of me. Maybe I don't know. She's trying to bewitch us with her her butt slapping. And I think I think that's a good seems a good example of like how the movie's both creepy and funny, but like intentionally so. Yeah. Like, it, they're kind of a weird buffoonish people. You wouldn't think they could do anything that, like, horrific and violent. Like, they're just weirdos <laughs> hanging out on this island, like, having a lot of weird sex and, like, teaching children how to dance maypoles. Like, <laughs> it don't seem that bad. They're and, weird. And Christopher Lee, like, leads the, like, huge festival at the end. He's, like, in drag, slapping a tambourine, just sort of, like, dancing around. It's kind of funny how that's supposed to be, like, this menacing thing. Oh, yeah. Ooh, Christopher Lee in a really <laughs> ugly makeup and, like, a long wig, like, as the sorceress, like, from, yeah. like, the tarot card deck. Like, he's supposed to be the 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 queen of wands or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that scene has a really good, like, Mardi Gras vibe. Mm-hmm. The whole film felt very Mardi Gras. Uh, the first film. Not the second film, in the least. 
The yeah. first film felt very Mardi Gras. Like they just have like this drunken revelry at some point. Like, if if Wes Anderson costumed a Mardi Gras, yeah, like a lot of large, oversized, uh, but lifelike looking plaster animal heads, mm-hmm. but wearing regular clothes with them. You know, like Fantastic Mr. Fox kind of like wearing a suit, got a big fox head, going about your normal business. But does the second movie have a tone like that? No. Somehow, like, there's still the procession and there's still the animal heads, but somehow it doesn't feel like Mardi Gras anymore. There's something off about it. There's something off about the whole movie. (laughs) There's also no music in the second one. The first one has all these weird folk songs that sound so authentic that you're like, oh, are these real folk songs? They're extremely vulgar. I don't remember, you know, Scottish folk music being this vulgar, but maybe. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so, like, of course we had to look them up and... No, they were written for the movie, and a lot of them, like, took a long time for the soundtrack to be released, but a lot of people have covered some of these songs. But yeah, like, no real music in the second one. I feel like the second one tries to fit this, like, interesting, weird art film that the first one is into this, like, 2000s horror box. Yeah. They were like, hey, do you like new metal guitars? (laughs) Do you like beating up women? Jump scares. Do you like jump scares? You'll like this movie. Yeah, it just really just doesn't fit. There's like these creepy twins that speak, speak at the same time. And they're yeah. blind and they're elderly. Like so many gross things. And they're women. Ew. Ew. <laughs> and it's kind of funny how it follows sometimes exact dialogue from the first movie. Like almost scene for scene. But it just plays it for such a different effect. And it's so devoid of like its own tone, where as the like it's the same exact content, just like played wrong and yeah. flat. And if it weren't for Nick Cage's like over the top yelling and running around, there there would it be would, no reason yeah, to watch. No this. one would. It would have been forgotten, <laughs> utterly forgotten. Um. I almost the misogyny in the movie where they're like basically demonizing the idea of a matriarchy. You almost want to be like, oh, was that intentional? Like I can't even tell if this movie actually hates women or if this was sort of like something it stumbled into because of the setting. But if you look into the um, director's other work, this guy Neil Labute, uh, he's known for being like a nasty playwright who writes all this misanthropic... uh, He's a film about like two businessmen who like psychologically and physically torture like a blind woman or deaf woman. And it's just like, what? Why why did you feel the need to make that? (laughs) It's, it's kind of crazy how it's coming from such a nasty place, and I think that is why it is a little funny. Cause, yeah, because he wanted to, like, really educate us on, like, evils <laughs> and matriarchy, and instead we got just Nick Cage screaming up about bees. <laughs> but no, I, I felt like the, the, the misogyny was intentional, because the original film, it was not a matriarchy. There was an even number of both sexes living on the island, and the men very much had agency, and the women very much had agency, and that was something that made him uncomfortable. And the first movie is that the women would talk back to him, the the first police officer. Yeah. But, like, the men would talk back to him, too. So, like, he was like, no, women should be more subservient to the men. But, like, that was his own misogyny. Whereas this, like, these women are just, they're out of control. Just so bad. <laughs> it's kind of sad that both of these were, like, commercial flops, too. I'm surprised the first one was a commercial flop because it, it's pretty scary. I mean, like... It's so well done. It's so well done. Like, you can see what's going to happen by the end of it. Like, we know we know what's going to happen with the Wicker Man, but, like, at the same time, you're like, these buffoonish weird sex fiends. Like, I wouldn't really think they're going to do it. <laughs> like, it's it's hard to sell a movie, I think, where the good guy doesn't win, maybe. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know what it is about that that people don't find satisfying. I mean, also, you know, social mores, you know, the threat of, like, hippies was such a big thing, and they were like, this is what would happen if they if we gave hippies their own island. Like, they would start doing this stuff. So, like, yeah. maybe people were a little more paranoid about that. Like, yeah. Well, I guess uh, the Puget Sound area of the country has, like, a large concentration of, like, hippy-dippy people still. Yeah, no, uh, there's a lot of communes out on the islands out there. Really beautiful places, for the most part. But that's all they really changed, like you said. They made it a matriarchy, and they swapped out apples for bees. Yeah. So, uh... That's why Nick Cage gets to yell towards the end. He's like, killing me won't save your goddamn bees. <laughs> uh-huh. Which is, is like an almost exact line because the, the other guy in the first movie does say, killing me won't bring back your goddamn apples. So. Yeah. But it means more for that guy to say goddamn. Yeah, because uh, yeah, he would never say that. He's a very de- devout Christian. Yeah. Like, he's an Anglican. Like, he, at the very, the very first shots of the movie are him at church. Like, leading the choir, and, like, there's a young lady next to him, and he, like, tilts the, the hymnal to make sure she can see it so that she can sing loudly, too, because if she doesn't sing loudly, God won't favor her. <laughs> uh, how do you think this movie does, like, fit into the Harvest? I'm saying this movie as if it's one thing, but how do you think these, like, fit into, like, the Harvest theme? Uh, I mean, it, it is very much about their Harvest. You know, like, nine months prior, like, during their Harvest, something bad happened, and they did not you know, have the yield they expected to have. So now Mayday, they're going to like try and set it right so they can like reset their harvest. So a lack of a harvest is actually like kind of the most important like event that sets all of this off. Yeah. It kind of makes me wonder like what we didn't do right this spring for 2016 to be such a shit year. Yeah. Maybe we, we should have killed more virgin cops. We probably need to like <laughs> do a human sacrifice, build a wicker man, lock a cop in it, like launch a bunch of goats. Chickens. Do you think if they stop holding Burning Man concerts in the desert, um, that we'll start having terrible harvests every year? Is that like a worthwhile sacrifice that people are doing out there? Oh, I don't know. I've never <laughs> been to Burning Man, so I, I couldn't say. I'm going to say prob- probably not. Probably not. It can't Maybe. be helping. It can't help. So. <laughs> I, I guess if I had to like... I guess if I had to include anything else about the second one, if, if we're kind of railing on it for being a terrible piece of shit... The movie starts with this car crash on the side of the road that's uh, sort of tormenting Nick Cage's cop throughout the film. That's why he has so much downtime to go across state lines Yeah. to an island where he has no jurisdiction and try and like, shake down a bunch of women. I, how many times about do you think we saw that uh, same car crash replay in his mind? Oh god, like at least like five times? Like a ridiculous number of times to like flash back. <laughs> Because then there's also, like, the question of, did it actually happen? Because no bodies were recovered from the crash. Like, <laughs> they had no papers. We don't know. Like, it was such, like, a weird, unfinished thread in the movie. Like, because it was kind of implied that they were from that island somehow. Oh, totally. Yeah. But, like, because they didn't have paperwork. And then he was like, how do people not have paperwork? They're like, the car just wasn't registered to anyone. <laughs> Guess we'll never know who they were. But like, what? That's not a thing. Like... Cars are registered to someone, like. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, like, instead of spending any effort on trying to like flesh those things out, they literally just show you the same car wreck over and over, over again. Over and over again. <laughs> we don't get any new information any of the times. So he doesn't like have an insight and like realizes he can see like her ID on the dashboard. Like, hey. <laughs> I mean, the only um, information you get is that, that it's possibly it's possible that they were made entirely of bees the whole time, and you just didn't know. Yeah, that that is one. <laughs> the flashbacks everything just turns to bees 
Which I, I mean, if it had turned into like a Candyman kind of conspiracy, where every woman on the island was actually just like a a bunch of bees, a bunch in of a bees. <laughs> I would have been really into that. Yeah. Um, but really, there really isn't that much. No, creatively they could have, they could have also film. gone to the late '90s, early 2000s plot of they're secretly all an alien. You know, mm. all of the faculty or something. You know, like yeah, they also could have given us that that like maybe all these women are actually an alien race who came down and like they're like. You know, hi- they're they're hibernating right now. They're like building a population before they like infect the rest of us. I don't know. Anything like that to justify remaking a movie as good as the first one would have been nice. Yeah, because <laughs> they like we said they don't really change much except that it loses a bunch of context and then he tacks on this like nasty gender politics um, veneer over the whole thing. I mean, he makes it a lot more like grossly violent. Like they're pretty genteel with the first cop. Even though they are locking them in a giant wicker man that they intend to burn, like, sure, like, that's not too nice, but they're pretty nice about it, altogether. Like, they let him have fun to where he thinks he's, like, saving the day, they, like, are very gentle with him. This one, like, it gets really violently brutal, like, kneecaps are smashed, like, women are punched in the face, like, you know, he's got bees poured on his head, even though they know he's allergic to them. He gets, like, an EpiPen to the neck, which you should not do. Yeah, that, that looks really wrong. That is not how you do an EpiPen. Please do not follow this movie's medical advice. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, in the first one, they're, like, playing him for the fool, and that's his part in the festival is he, he is the fool. Yeah, he, he can't know what's going on, and he very gamely goes along with this plan. And in the uh, second one, he's supposed uh, Nick Cage is playing like the knight. Yeah, he's, he's supposed the to knight. come save yeah, he's the, the day. Yeah, the knight. Like, but it's not as interesting or as like entertaining to watch this like guy try to be a savior character, and even though he doesn't pull it off, you're supposed to be rooting for him to like find this missing girl who may not even exist. It's just a strange impulse to remake this movie and then strip it of like its weirdness yeah. to fit it into this sort of genre box. Like, I don't understand why this was made in the first place. No, and especially because the people who made the original one got Christopher Lee on board to do, like, a second film. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't going to be a remake. It was going to be kind of like the sequel where Christopher Lee, instead of playing, like, the, the patriarch of this, like, pagan island, was going to play a, like, door-to-door minister who ends up on the island. Along with his wife, played, I think, by, like, Vanessa Redgrave or something. And, like, that project fell apart, and that's why the studio got to remake it, because, like, the other one fell apart. It's like, no, I'd much rather watch Christopher Lee reprise, like, not the same role, but, like, the same, like, spirit, like, and continue working with the same director. We could have gotten more weird folk music to cover. (laughs) But no. And he is really funny in this movie. Like, he plays the piano and sings songs. Oh, well, there's, like, a woman on a bearskin rug next to him, like, drinking wine. They're like, what? Why why do you have so many sexual hang-ups? Just, like, come swing with us. (laughs) We We live in this super cool mansion. Why won't you like us? Like... Come on, hang out. It made me miss him a lot. It reminded me a lot of his role in uh, Howling Part 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. Mm. It's got kind of a similar, like, know-it-all vibe, where he's, like, sort of the master of all this information and why this world works the way it does, but he's in no rush to explain it to anyone. He just, like, lives in his wealthy scholar mansion and enjoys his his apple harvest when they come in well. Yeah. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to say about these two movies together? I think it's definitely worthwhile watching the first one. <laughs> I think, unless you really want to, uh, I think you can utterly skip the second one. 
I don't think it's a shame that the second one's been boiled down to Nick Cage screaming. Yeah, no, because that is the best bit. If you only watch <laughs> the last like forty minutes of the movie, like you, you're doing pretty well. We can even watch just the last half hour. Sometimes Nick Cage performances are sort of like turned into memes, sort of unfairly. Uh, oh no, not in this case. Not in this case. Not in this case. Like, very fairly. Vampire's Kiss is a very funny movie from front to end, and just as ridiculous as this, but for the entire length of the film instead of like towards the end uh so it's kind of a shame to like boil down vampire's kiss into like a five minute youtube clip but it's not a shame that wicker man 2006 was boiled down into youtube clips that's exactly what it yeah uh, it's it's that's the perfect like punishment really for this film (laughs) but if there is a shame about it it's that that not the bees meme has sort of overshadowed how wonderful and weird the 1973 Wicker Man is. Like, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we can't divorce the the first one from from Not the Bees, which <laughs> isn't even a line in the first one. Come on. <laughs> yeah, there's just a level of production design and detail, like even in this like small candy shop for children. There's all these like eggs and bunnies and just weird pagan fertility symbols. A cake that looks just like a person that's full of like person. Yeah. Like when you pregnant. cut it open, yeah. like it's like what? <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Delicious looking, but like real fucked up king cake you got there. <laughs> what was the candle hand too? That was a good Oh uh, yeah, the um oh, what is that thing called? I forget. But no, that's a like a D and D thing. A hand of glory. That's what it a is. A hand of glory? Hand of glory is where you take the hand from a hanged corpse or in this case it was just a random old woman that like he just previously saw in a coffin he's like trying to find this missing girl he opens a coffin there's an old woman and it looks like her hand is injured and then later they like use this like dead person's hand against him like he does not know this but like they're like oh yes if we use this hand like a candle and light it in front of him he will sleep <laughs> forever, and he won't wake up in time for the festivities. <laughs> and of course, he like is like, "Oh, I heard that," and like you know, runs out to do his like dumb thing. It reminds me of like when parents sort of patronize their kids like that, like the kids like sleeping in the car, like, "Oh, we were gonna go get ice cream, but Billy fell asleep in the back, so I guess we'll just go straight home." Yeah, ma'am. <laughs> Too bad someone didn't clean their room. Now Santa can't come. Yeah, uh, they, it's so fun to watch them play this guy like a fool even though like you said at this point it's really obvious where the film is going it shows you where it's going on its poster like yeah (laughs) there's gonna be a wicker man yeah and it's title even um yeah like maybe maybe in 73 it was more of a surprise but uh I, i think there are very few people who are vaguely aware of what the wicker man is who don't know that at the end there is a human sacrifice yeah I think even if you missed the opportunity to watch this as like a harvest Thanksgiving viewing experience, it like we said, it, it is tied to the cyclical nature of growing crops. Mm-hmm. So maybe hold this in your back pocket for springtime, like right before Mardi Gras would be a good time. Yeah, I think I think the original Wicker Man would be a great accompaniment to Mardi Gras. And maybe skip watching the second one and just watch the last half hour. Yeah, or, you can watch the YouTube clips. Just watch the YouTube clips. Even though that happens to be the one that's easily available on Netflix right now, it's not necessarily the best one to watch. Yeah, Hold you out can, for the DVD copy. Yeah, you can go to your library and rent the first one pretty easily. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. I don't really have anything to promote coming up for the website, especially soon, 
But for this next episode of the podcast, one of our writers, Allie Hobbs, is going to be on a recording for the first time. So we haven't had everyone who writes for the side of the podcast before, so it's really cool that we have another guest coming in. So it's not just me and Cece talking your ear off every episode. <laughs> Until then, have a, have a great couple of weeks. We'll see you soon. Yep. See you later. Bye.